the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the Pro-America Report on The Answer, San Diego. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. And uh, we have a couple of great guests, uh, so hang in there. And uh, please visit ProAmericaReport.com if you want to uh, follow those, uh, excuse me, hear these interviews. We'll have Denisha Merriweather, the founder of Black Minds Matter, uh, talking about the Amer- uh, about children and our youth. And we'll also talk with John Schlafly later today. John Schlafly, of course, uh, one of the leaders of the Phyllis Schlafly Eagle and also the co-author with his brother Andy of what is called the Weekly Schlafly Report, available at townhall.com. So visit proamericareport.com to find out all those interviews and also sign up for the daily email, What You Need to Know, the Wink, which gives you at 8 a.m. East Coast time, 5 a.m. Pacific time, 7 a.m. Central time, and 6 a.m. Mountain time. You get in your inbox Monday through Friday, an email. Gives you what you need to know, a couple of links, a couple of thought-provoking articles, and sets you on your day and puts you on your way. Trust me, you want to sign up, ProAmericaReport.com. Okay, what you need to know today, today is a very shaky day. Very shaky day for me. I'm seeing less coverage of it than I expected, uh, probably because everybody's jaded. But in the last 24 hours, we have had the experience of the uh, a leak uh, late on Tuesday afternoon, early evening, a leak went out to the Washington Post, soon confirmed by Associated Press and then everybody else. And it is uh, the leak was that the Trump administration, excuse me, the Trump Corporation and maybe Trump himself is it, it has been called before a grand jury in New York, New York State. Now, this, I guess, has been talked about for weeks. It's been bandied about. But the fact that there is a leak about a grand jury, it brings me to this. And I talked about this on my uh, on my uh, we, uh, my daily uh, live stream that I do at 9.45 a.m. over on uh, YouTube and Facebook Live and all. You can find it there. I said this, lawfare, lawfare is the use of law and sort of legal processes against a human being, against we the people. And the, the, the poster child for that, the poster boy for that is General Michael Flynn, where it was clear that in the Obama White House, you know, uh, looks like the notes that Strzok had were that Biden and Susan Rice and others were saying, find a law, use the Logan Act, do something, target that guy. And then the process became the punishment, lawfare. And as the size and scope of government has grown massively in the last, say, 40 or 50 years, you, you can see that the, the power of government to, to engage in what I call lawfare has increased. There's regulatory paths to that. There's, uh, there's, um, compliance issues. Uh, I guess that's regulatory too. There's IRS. There's all kinds of ways that government can put its tentacles into your life and make you miserable. And if the government is used as a political, targeting political opponents, it, it gets really bad fast. Lois Lerner of the IRS is the best, you know, sort of most popular example in the last 15 years. I think it was about 2010 or so, 2011. She was using the IRS to target uh, uh, Tea Party groups. 
General Flynn's a good example. But the, but the, the power and the centralization of government and the use of government, it's raced to the bottom. Now, you can blame the Soros-funded prosecutors in cities, and you should. They certainly have come in and done bad things, looked the other way on laws and all. But the idea that the that grand juries in America and in the tradition of grand juries, they've been around since about the 1200s. And grand juries started as a way to make a sort of check on the power of the sovereign. Because what, what a grand jury is supposed to do is a secret gathering of, of your peers, citizens in the community, who look at what the charges might be and say, yeah, that's okay, go ahead. As opposed to, if you didn't have a grand jury, you would just charge everybody. And you would basically be living with a trial by jury for any charge that the prosecutor or the sovereign wanted. When it started grand juries, it was the king. And so the idea was a secret gathering that was at least something of a check on that power. And, you know, over time, there is a joke. People say a a ham sandwich can get indicted under a grand jury because grand jury is really unique. You know, a trial, a jury trial, you may, everyone's familiar, you know, 12 people sitting up there and it's in public and you have a defense attorney and a prosecutor and a judge and a court reporter and all. Well, a grand jury is secret. The citizens are the same, drawn from the community we live in, but there's no judge, there's no court reporter, there's no defense, it's just the prosecutor, who is supposed to say, hey guys, um, I, I got this, 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 and this, we're going to indict this guy, does that look okay? And the grand jury over the years and decades now has come to the point where you're sort of spun by the prosecutor, they, the, the prosecutor has no obligation to present exculpatory evidence or anything, so if, if you go to a grand jury, you get uh, probably get indicted. But the danger here is that because it's Donald Trump, there's no secrecy in the grand jury. And the idea that our journalists and our, 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 our that no one is saying, hey, wait a second, the system is designed as a check on power. In other words, the secret, the secretiveness of the system is designed as a check on power. And because it's Trump, it doesn't matter. And I have to say, the number of times we've sort of raced to the bottom, Nancy Pelosi used impeachment for an argument about politics after January 6th. She's trying to use the the the, 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 the Congress to set up a commission and, and cause you to think of 9-11 as equivalent to other stuff. It's crazy. But now we've got the judicial, the, the, the rule of law set up in such a way that it's targeting people. Now, I texted General Flynn last night. And I asked him about why I said, had you seen this? And he said, yes, it's terrible. And then he said, but Americans are seeing through it and they're sick of it. I think he might be right. But I have to say, the problem, as you know, the listeners know, is the power of the narrative machine. So when big government in the form of the attorney general of, of, of New York uh, uh, convenes or the, I guess, the prosecutor of New York City, maybe it's the district attorney, convenes a grand jury, calls and panels a grand jury, and then the secret process is leaked to the press, who jumps to the, to the, to the, into the process? The big media and starts the brainwashing and big tech, which starts the, uh, the, the, the cognitive transformation. And we're fed a narrative that is effectively Someone did something wrong, you know, and you don't, you know, months from now, it's going to probably take five or six months for a grand jury to be impaneled, to hear evidence, to make a decision. So we're just going to have expert after experts speculating, mind reading, and the system is breaking. The system is becoming not just lawfare, but it's becoming a, 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 a an erosion destruction of our way of life of our republic because the rule of law and the applicability of the rule of law is supposed to be equal 
It's supposed to be as fair as we can make it. And it's supposed to have checks on the power. And when you see the check on the power, in this case, the secrecy of the grand jury eroded and nobody know, nobody says anything. The AP story last night didn't say in a, in a, in a violation of all norms and, and uh, regular uh, conduct, uh, it has leaked that this happened. Nobody cares. Because why? Because the media wants to get Trump and they want the Trump stories and they're just chasing their tails. It's extraordinary to watch. It's unbelievable to see happening. And, and, and it's, it should be worrying as to the very fabric of America. Now, I, I'm not one to be too dramatic on this. As you know, I tend to think we'll always get better and better and come back and fight through. But this one really is, uh, to me, it's gone so far now. And what's happening is when there's no friction, when there's no pushback on some on bad conduct, you know, like I've said, Susan Rice, I think, was one of the worst people in government last administration under Obama. And she did things that should have had her, you know, almost unemployable, let alone uh, back in public life. And she's back in public life at the highest levels. And forget about her for a second. Just say to yourself, when conduct that is so poor unethical, problematic, is not recognized and named and therefore sort of, um, how to say, like uh, stigmatized. If it's not stigmatized, guess what? People say the opposite. They say, let's do that. I'll do that. I can be the next Susan Rice. That's what you're seeing. And so at a certain point, I'm not a guy for the slippery slope. I'm not even a guy for the tipping point. Those are sort of artificial constructs. I'm just for describing where we are. And the lawfare, they're on the march. (laughs) The left and big government is on the march, aided and abetted by big media and big uh, tech. They're on the march. And um, where they're stopping, I don't know. I don't know. All right, we got to stop, though, right now and take a break. Don't forget, please visit ProAmericaReport.com. Get all these interviews over there, and we'll be right back with some great interviews up next. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro America Report. Back in a moment. Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro America Report. Our new old friend. He's now an old friend. He's been on three or four times. Brandon Weikert, who is the author of a very good book. I have this book. It's from Republic Book Publishers, my new favorite publisher. Uh, and it's called Winning Space, How America Remains a Superpower. And uh, Brandon Weikert is a geopolitical analyst. He manages the Weikert Report, World News Done Right. You go to Twitter, at WeTheBrandon, at WeTheBrandon. He's got a piece over at Real Clear Politics a day or two ago. We'll talk about that. But first, uh, what Welcome back, Brandon Weikert. How are you, sir? I am doing excellent. How are you? I'm doing fine. Before I get into your piece, can I ask you just an overarching question about Elon Musk and SpaceX and everything? Like, I just see yeah. so much, you know, he, he's such a master of uh, of getting attention and kind of getting people thinking directionally. It, but he's also, I think he's got plants. He wants to, he's building Tesla cars in Russia, maybe, or he wants to, and in China. And is yeah. when we talk about America competing to get to space... Is private funding like uh, SpaceX or private entities like SpaceX, um, is that American? I mean, is that is that part of our effort or do we need to have more from the government or how, how do they fit together? Well, they fit together in the sense of a public-private cooperative. Um, as you may know, SpaceX receives copious U.S. tax dollars for its operations, mm-hmm. and that has actually... I know a lot of our friends on the conservative side don't like that. They think it's big 
you know, corporate welfare, yeah. but it's actually how we used to do R and D up until the 1990s, from 1945 until 1994, pretty much. The U.S. government used to spend a lot of money on building out high-tech infrastructure, things like Bell Labs, the telecommunications infrastructure, uh, you know, supercomputers, DARPAnet, which became the internet. Basically, they the, the U.S. taxpayer paid for the infrastructure, which then allowed for private venture uh, capital to come in and innovate all the amazing products that we now take for granted today. Um, and uh, so, so that's, that's the relationship that we need. And, um, and that's basically uh, what Tesla is doing on a small scale. Unfortunately, um, we have to be a concern that uh, not Tesla, uh, uh, SpaceX, Unfortunately, we have to be concerned uh, that maybe uh, some of these companies uh, based in America might be willing to do business overseas and receive foreign funding. Tesla, which is Elon Musk's other company, as you know, also receives U.S. tax funding, but is also opened plants in uh, Beijing, and they also are now talking about opening plants in Russia. But SpaceX, which I think is far more important than Tesla, SpaceX is almost entirely American. Uh, The rockets, Hmm. Falcon 9 reusable rockets, are built in America. All the parts are American, and they're they're launched from uh, places like Texas and Virginia Beach. So this is an American endeavor. That's the more important thing. And so, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that, that, that's good. For, that's what we need, though, is a public-private cooperative. All right. We're talking with Brandon Weikert again. His book is called Winning Space, How America Remains a Superpower, by Republic, published by Republic Book Publishers, available anywhere you get books. All right. This piece here, you open with this scene, which was reported a few weeks ago, 10 days ago or so, the, the uh, Chinese regime landed a... Um, uh, and landed a rover on Mars. So they caught up to us on Mars and people made something of a big deal about it. What's it really mean? I mean, it, 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 does it mean that China needed to chase us for the PR? Does it mean that they've had a breakthrough in technology? We ought to be like, wow, or is it what we knew? What, what does it really mean? Well, what it means is that China is opening a new front in its uh, full-throated effort to replace the United States as the sole superpower in the world by 2049, which is the 100th year anniversary of the founding of the Chinese Communist Party, their victory over their enemies, the Chinese nationalists, as led by Chiang Kai-shek, which, of course, went on to to found the democracy on Taiwan. Uh, 1949 Mm -hmm. was the founding. That 2049 is the 100th year anniversary that China envisions it will displace America and and reassert itself what it sees as its historical uh, 5,000 year kind of position as being the center of the world. Space is one of the many fronts that they want to replace America in. And while the rover that landed on Mars is nowhere near as technically advanced as the one currently operated by NASA, the fact is China accomplished this in about 18 years, whereas it took us about 30 years to get to where we are on Mars. My question Mm. in the piece is, given all the resources and funding and dedication to the Chinese space program, where will China be in another 18 years in space? And where will we be? Because so Mm. far, we really haven't been good in space really since the Cold War. And that's got to change. 
Oh, we're talking again with Brandon Weikert, and uh, his book, uh, again, is Winning Space, How America Remains a Superpower, uh, Republic Book Publishers. Uh, Brandon, um, in the piece, you sort of open-end it. You say, well, where are we going to be in 18 years? You open-end it. Um, what, what's the will uh, in America? I mean, right. you mentioned SpaceX gets uh, funding. Um, uh, Joe Biden has allowed the Space Force to stay there. But, you know, yeah. um, I remember vividly when Obama shut down the NASA program, mostly, you know, and it's a little dramatic, but he really cut way back on all on the uh, yeah. on the um, shut, shuttle program the and shuttle. all that. A lot of people. Yeah, a lot, a lot of people, my wife included, was like, what? Why are we doing that? Do, do we have enough people in uh, in leadership in this country that want to make this a priority, that see the reality of whoever controls space in the next 50 years yeah. controls geopolitics? Do we have enough leaders? Yeah. So the reason it was open-ended in the piece is because I genuinely can't discern yet. The reason I can't discern is because going into his presidency, I just assumed Biden would just do everything opposite of Trump. But as you know, I consult regularly with the Air Force and the Space Force, and every one of the people that I know has told me off the record how shocked they are that the Biden administration appears intent on following through with the things that Trump began at least with Space Force, uh, and, and they're actually trying to build off of it because they recognize that there's a real issue if we don't control space, at the very least in terms of satellites. Uh, the issue now is, though, um, how much of a unanimous agreement is there in the administration? Can that be carried over to another administration? Can we create in Congress bipartisan long-term support for uh, a deeper, longer-ranging American space mission. I don't know the answer to that, because even though the Biden administration seems pretty much in agreement with the Trump administration on space, Congress is very much divided, and they're going to be there a lot longer than Biden will be, and we're going to have to constantly Mm -hmm. be hitting up Congress for funding. And so I don't know. That's why it was open-ended. But in China, it's pretty clear. There's a small cadre of people running the show, and they're all in agreement that they want China to be number one, and they're going to do whatever they have to to beat us by 2049. And I don't know yet if we have the leadership and the political will and the cultural machismo to say, we're going to challenge China and we're going to hold the line in space. I don't know yet. Yeah. We're talking with Brandon Weikert. Again, his book is Winning Space uh, from Republic Book Publishers. You know, the end of your piece, which overran at Real Clear Politics, um, you know, you made a little bit of a, a one of those great finishes. Uh, in the meantime, Washington's still holding up America's manned space pro- program until a female friendly spacesuit can be made. And then, you know, this is what lose this is what losing looks like, America, is how you finish the piece. But all kidding aside, I mean, if it was a priority, and I, I just be crass about it. If it was a priority, it would be in the infrastructure bill. It would have been in the COVID relief yeah. bill. I mean, we bailed out Illinois. We bailed out New York. We bailed out the school teachers unions. There was billions, tens of billions, hundreds of billions of dollars thrown around that if you said, you know yeah. what? I, someone was saying, Hey, keep, we got to beat China. Let's keep throwing that in almost like, you know, we know we're going to yeah. do other stupid stuff. This is something that we right. have to do. It's not in there. It's not in there, right? You're right. You're right. And actually, this also kind of ties into your last question, because 
when I wrote that piece, that, that ending, I had senior NASA scientists writing the most disgusting things to me on Twitter, uh, flaming me, saying that I was, you know, not, I was not pro-women and, and we can walk and chew bubblegum at the same time. I wasn't knocking the idea of women in space. What I was saying is they're literally holding up funding for getting Americans back to the moon until a female-friendly spacesuit can be built. And it's taking billions of dollars and huge amounts of time to do this. And in the meanwhile, China's eating our lunch up there. And you're right. If we were serious about this, A, we would be saying we're going to use whatever equipment we have now to get to the moon before China and Russia do. And secondly, we would be throwing in funding for these things and all the different funding bills. You're absolutely right. And this gets back to my open-ended question, because while the Biden administration is shockingly at least somewhat in agreement with Trump on space, who Trump was the most uh, serious space president since probably JFK or Reagan, uh, the fact is Congress is not serious about it. And they're the ones who are going to be the the deciders because they're the ones who control the power of the purse. And so far, they're Mm -hmm. not funding it properly. Yeah. All right. Brandon Weikert, uh, keep everybody keep reading him again. He, you can find him on Thank Twitter you. at we the Brandon at we the Brandon and also the Weikert report world news done right. And his book again is winning space. How America remains a superpower. I'll put it all up on social media. Thanks, Brandon. Thank we appreciate you, it. All right. We'll take a break, everybody. Yep. We'll be we'll be right back. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. You got to read that guy, Brandon Weikert. He's on the front edge of this. It's really good on Twitter, too. Take a break. Be right back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on a Pro-America Report. And our next guest is Dr. Patrick Moore. His book is called Fake Invisible Catastrophes and the Threats of Doom. It's out on paperback just a few months ago. You want to check it out. It's uh, it's really good. It's really good. It's really good. And the, the chapters, I'm about halfway through. Uh, and it's got chapters uh, on all kinds of things exposing, as it says, fake invisible catastrophes. And, of course, <clears throat> pardon me, Dr. Patrick Moore has been a leader in the international environmental field for more than uh, four decades, co-founder of Greenpeace, spent nine years as the president of Greenpeace Canada, uh, also had a director of Greenpeace International uh, involved, as you can might tell from all that, for many, many years. Before, Dr. Moore, we get to the book, I want to ask you about a different fake invisible catastrophe that my late boss, Phyllis Schlafly, used to, uh, she wrote about a number of times because Paul Ehrlich was from St. Louis, Washington University, and he wrote the yeah. famous book, The Population the Population Bomb, in 1968, and said, we're going to run out of food, we're going to run out of, uh, you know, uh, everything, we're going to just be eating ourselves, blah, blah, blah. And it just turned to be totally uh, a bad guess. What's the difference? I mean, I, I don't think he was fake. I think he was a imagining what's the difference between fake catastrophes and you know where people are honestly predicting something uh, al gore said the world was going to be a mess by now it's not fake it and or political sort of politically useful sort of gamesmanship i mean some are just attempts to guess or, or predict they go wrong others really are sort of devious where where did the where does the line cross over in what you see well for one thing not one doomsday scenario has ever come true or we wouldn't be here now <laughs> so these guys That's are good bad and zero they're bad and yeah, zero but good the, the, the main theme of my book ed is that all the scare stories today are about things that are either invisible or so remote right. that no one can check it for themselves carbon dioxide is visible invisible radiation is invisible polar bears are at the north pole the coral reefs 
are underwater way off in the tropics, and they're huge. How many people can snorkel the whole Great Barrier Reef to see how it's doing? So that means that means we depend on the activists, the media, the politicians, and the scientists who are being paid by the politicians to feed them this stuff so they can feed the media and the activists. And among them all, there are hundreds of billions of dollars being made by fake scare stories because the average person can't check it out for themselves. If somebody said the trees on mountains across the bay are going to catch on fire tomorrow, and then they didn't catch on fire, you would know right. that that wasn't true, that that had been a false prediction. But how can you know when someone says carbon dioxide will cause the earth to heat up till it's too hot for life? That's the kind of thing they're saying. And it's complete and utter balderdash. And we're talking with Dr. Patrick Moore. And so my, back to the heart of my question, are they do, are most of the people doing it to make money? Are some of them doing it because they're just wrong on the science? To your point, that your your argument, which is I think important, it, it, it's easier to scare people about something they can't put their hands on. If you can put your hands on it and say, "Uh, yeah, okay, I can feel that. I'm not I'm not afraid of that, or I am afraid of that." Um, but again, who are they doing it to make money? Are they doing it for power? Are they doing it for arrogance? Who is it? Too many people just have too much time in academia. What what's behind the sort of intention? Can you, I know you can't read everybody's mind, but what, what's your feeling on it? Well, it's a serious occupation to get power and money. And there's lots of power and money in it, as you well know. People are predicting that the end of the world is coming, and nearly every Western nation is planning on destroying itself and its energy base as a result of these myths. So we have to get this done. We have to get people to understand that this is fake and not to elect people who say they're going to end the use of fossil fuels. Because carbon dioxide, invisible as it is, is the most important food for all life on Earth, on the land and in the seas. That's where the carbon comes from in carbon-based life, which is you and me and every other single living thing on the planet. They've got it completely backwards. They've got us all hoodwinked. Well, they don't have me hoodwinked, but they got a large <laughs> proportion of the population hoodwinked, and they are also evil because they are doing this to our children who do not have the defenses or the knowledge to fight back. And they're scaring our kids to death. And I want this ended. And I want it ended now. Uh, we're talking with Dr. Patrick Moore, who was one of the founders of Greenpeace. And uh, Greenpeace was founded in 1971. So he's early on in that in that uh, effort. And now we're talking, and, and let me remind some folks on uh, on social media, he is uh, at EcoSense Now. EcoSense Now. I'll put it up on social media. And again, the book is called Fake, Invisible Catastrophes and Threats of Doom by Dr. Patrick Moore. Um, what happens? <laughs> is there a reunion? of early supporters and founders of Greenpeace? And do you get invited back? I mean, what's the relationship with you and some of your fellow travelers uh, after all these years? They're nearly all dead, Ed. And uh, Oh, because <laughs> of global warming? No, never mind. Sorry. <laughs> but there is one or two left. Uh, one of them is a bit of a recluse. He was a photographer on the first voyage. And the other one is a doctor. Uh, who is still my very best friend. So uh, that's yeah. about it. I don't know any of the people who are in it today, and I don't care to. 
did the, did they hijack? The, is that the, what what happened? Is what started as an instinct about you know loving the creation you know of of of, of what we have, and then it got hijacked. Is that what you? How would you describe it? How you describe it? Yes, I would. Yes, I would. We started out with green and peace, green for nature and peace for people. The peace got dropped. Then they started calling humans the enemies of the earth, like as if we were the only bad species on the planet, which is way too much like original sin for me. We are a good species, just like all the other ones. We've survived all through the hundreds of millions of years our ancestors came before us. And so we are part of life, and we should celebrate that. And we should celebrate the beauty of this wonderful earth we're on, instead of thinking it's going to blow up or burn up or come to some kind of horrible end and kill all our children, which is a terrible thing to be doing to the minds of the people. People who are hardworking and don't have time to really figure this out. That's why I wrote this book. It's only 208 pages. It has over 100 color illustrations, graphs, and charts to help people understand it, and it's written in plain English. If you can understand what I'm talking about now, you can read my book, and so can any you know, high school student that's doing well. And, and I hope parents will buy it and share it with their, with their younger uh, children and older children. We're talking again with Dr. Patrick Moore. His book he mentioned is Fake Invisible Catastrophes and the Threats of Doom. It's paperback out on or early this year, and you can get it anywhere you get books. Um, so uh, well, what's only, the future? You can only get it on Ed. It, 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 it's Sorry? only on Amazon, and it's not just paperback. Oh. It's also in a Kindle, an e-book. It's also in an audio book, oh. so you can listen to it in your car. And it's also now a hardcover. So there's four different oh, options. Good. Uh, with different price oh. ranges, of course, the, the least expensive is the ebook, the Kindle, which is just electronic. You can have it on your iPad or your device. And uh, the paperback is uh, the next, and then uh, the audiobook and the paperback are pr- approximately the same price, under 20 bucks. And uh, okay. the, um, the, sorry, not under, uh, under 30 bucks. And the, the, yep. the hardcover is $33 or something like that. Okay. All right. We, we just got about a minute left, Dr. Patrick Moore. What's the future in terms of the things that threaten us, all these environmentalists and all, you know, uh, under the uh, under the Trump administration, there was a lot of talk about sort of new nuclear, that nuclear was the future. What's your what's the sense that we're consuming more? We need more energy than ever. So what's the future? What's your sense? Nuclear energy is by far the most important technology partly to replace some of the fossil fuels so that they will last longer. Not because the fossil Mm -hmm. fuels are doing anything wrong, but they are precious. And we should, wherever we can, like making electricity, for example, make it with nuclear energy. Rolls-Royce in uh, Britain has just rolled out a new modular reactor, 480 megawatts, about half the size of a big nuke, that's going to be built in a factory. And they've built all the submarine nuclear reactors for the hmm. UK Navy, and they know what they're doing. So this is coming now. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Uh, it's coming, and I've got to finish. I've got to go. I'm out of time. Uh, Dr. Patrick Moore, the book is Fake Invisible Catastrophes and the Threats of Doom. I'll put all this information up on social media. Thank you for the time, sir. Very interesting topic and important that you're uh, weighing in. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much, Ed. I'll come on anytime you'd like me. Great. Thanks very much. We'll have you back. We'll take a break, everybody. We'll be right back. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Back in a moment. This is the Phyllis Schlafly Report, a daily broadcast from Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, a national volunteer organization founded by Phyllis Schlafly 
and continuing to uphold her legacy by honoring family values, opposing radical feminism, and representing a conservative perspective in our nation's capital. Now the president of Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, Ed Martin. Less than half of Americans have been vaccinated against COVID-19, and the Biden administration wants to raise those numbers by any means necessary. Herd immunity against COVID is not attainable by voluntary vaccination in the United States. Biden's call to vaccinate 200 million Americans in 100 days is not enough, but his people are working on a scheme to overcome that obstacle. A vaccine passport scheme is a way to compel vaccination by those who would prefer not to receive it. If such a system were to be put in place, Americans would be restricted from going to restaurants, sports games, or other venues unless they can prove that they've been vaccinated. This kind of drastic action would have a lot of unpleasant side effects for citizens, businesses, and more. Remember, less than half of Americans are vaccinated. So making vaccines mandatory for going to restaurants would inevitably lead to a substantially smaller customer base for businesses overall. This would cause some businesses to go bankrupt. As of now, we have no assurances of what specific places Americans would be excluded from going to. At a time when so many freedoms are already being violated, one has to wonder whether we would be required to get vaccinated in order to attend our churches, synagogues, or other houses of worship. Call me alarmist, but as someone who has spent more than a year in 15 days to slow the spread, I'm naturally skeptical when the government promises to limit its own power. Speaking of which, we have no assurances that this type of vaccine passport will be limited to the COVID-19 vaccine. Soon it could include other health and personal information about each of us, including what we've said and where we've been. For example, it could easily include information about whether someone was in Washington, D.C. on January 6th for the Trump rally or any political rally disfavored by the liberal media. It could include whether someone has been vaccinated against diseases other than COVID-19. Once America goes down this road, there's no limits to how far we could go. Vaccine passports are not a reasonable solution to America's problems. This has been the Phyllis Schlafly Report from Phyllis Schlafly Eagles. What's the best way to rekindle the spirit of Phyllis Schlafly and the grassroots movement she energized? In this digital age, patriots and pro-family Americans can find insight and inspiration on our website, phyllisschlafly.com. Then, share your own heart and mind on social media. So join us at phyllisschlafly.com and every weekday for the Phyllis Schlafly Report. Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. And um, thank you for tuning in. Great interviews again today. Please visit ProAmericaReport.com, ProAmericaReport.com. Sign up for the Daily Wink. Um, So it doesn't happen that often, but it happens every now and then where I get up in the morning early and I'm flipping through. I often tell you, you know, people ask me, what do you, where do you go for uh, sources of uh, news? And I tell people, I look at politico.com to see what the sort of institutional left is saying. I don't look at the New York Times anymore. It's not worth the trouble. I look at the Wall Street Journal. I look at Real Clear Politics, American Greatness, amgreatness.com. I go on Twitter and I look at some of the people that I follow and sort of what's trending. 
And um, so it's kind of eclectic. It's kind of eclectic. Um, it's uneven. It's un- eclectic. But um, but every now and then you have the experience where I clicked on Politico.com and there was a story on Rick Santorum being fired uh, from CNN. And I, I clicked on the story and lo and behold, three paragraphs in, there I was mentioned. And uh, and that's a first of all, that's a strange feeling in and of itself to be reading something and you see yourself in the story. And then the other thing is because you know your you know the truth. You, when you see yourself in a story, you realize, first of all, it's almost always wrong. So this story was by, I think, Jack Schaefer, who's kind of the media reviewer, media guru at Politico. And he, I don't I think he's a retired journalist of some kind. He's sort of a curmudgeon character, kind of fun to read. He's got a kind of snarky way about him. And um, so he's writing about this. And and what when you see yourself in these stories, especially if you're a conservative, I don't know if you're a liberal, you may see it and say, wow, they made, they treated me well. In mine, they always say something, um, they always just, it's, it's never true. And, you know, there's a famous... Um, they they call it the Gelman effect. The Gelman effect is uh, there was a scientist named Gelman who said every time he saw science, his science quoted, I think he was a physicist or something, he it was quoted incorrectly in the media. And he said, um, actually, it's called Gelman amnesia. I think the Gelman amnesia effect, because he said every time he saw his work uh, quoted in the in the popular press, he'd say it was wrong. And then he said he'd go over to the next page and he'd read the next thing and he'd believe it. And he said somehow we have amnesia for how often, you know, when we see something that we know about that it's wrong. And then when we look at the next page of the newspaper or online or whatever, you think it's uh, they must be telling the truth. So that's kind of the feeling I had watching Politico. But it was kind of interesting. Politico marched through the history of the people who were asked to be uh, sort of the conservative voice on CNN. And I have to say, I do I do grant them this point. CNN tried to have people people that would actually defend President Trump's policies and him. Jeffrey Lord was the one. I was next. Um, there was um, uh, Steve Cortez. Jason Miller was in there for a bit. Uh, and then Santorum was for the longer, longer time. They didn't just have, like MSNBC, they just have never Trumpers, people that hate Trump. They may be quote-unquote Republican, but they hate Trump. So they never get anybody. So I do give CNN grudgingly that credit. But here's the thing. The, 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 the dynamic at that uh, network, you won't be surprised to hear, is that it's just brutally unfair. Nobody, I mean, I've sat, sat next to Maggie Haberman. I sat next to, uh, Paul Bagala, all these people. And they're, they're favored in time to speak, in the framing of the questions, in what they say, in how it's handled the whole time. So you're, you're, you're paddling upstream. Absolutely 100% of the time and taking incoming. So you're taking incoming from all sides, you know, uh, uh, Simone Sanders, uh, Anna Navarro, April Ryan, you know, go through these lists. Matt Walsh, I think, was on there for a while, and he's sort of Republican, sort of. Um, even some of Kirsten Powers, who's really nice, actually, off the air, but she's really liberal. And then the hosts are like Don Lemon, Anderson Cooper. So you're paddling upstream. And you're always paddling upstream. The questions are always against you. And then you're taking incoming the whole time. And, you know, I used to go on for an hour at a time on CNN, on the Anderson Cooper show. I'd be on for the whole hour. And I'd get off the air. And my wife would text me. I'd be up in New York. My wife would text me from St. Louis. And she'd say, is this really worth it? Because even though I had the the, the sort of... um my my persona was the happy warrior. I never got flustered. I never got angry, at least on air. Um, my wife would just say, who's being persuaded? She's like, you're just, you know, you're just kind of a pinata in the center. And I got to tell you, uh, it, it, I did about six months 
I don't know how long, much longer I could have done, even though I got in trouble because I went home and I said on my radio show, on this radio show, I said that these people, not, not, the, not the hosts, the hosts were more careful. Don Lemon actually was more careful. He's crazy liberal, but Anderson Cooper, very careful. But the, the, these commentators, April Ryan, Simone Sanders, Anna Navarro, they, they just were, they just, no matter what, they would say you were racist. It didn't matter what you said, they yelled racist. And in fact, they were the ones that were racist. That's what I said. And so I got in trouble. But here's the fun thing. I got a call from the number two at CNN and she said, um, we got a, someone's heard you on your radio show um, and we're getting pressure. And I said, well, I don't know what to tell you. I, I didn't use people's names. I was careful. And I said, the one thing I would say is I probably could have been a little bit more spacious in saying I don't know them well enough to say they're racist. I should say that they act like that, that they toss that around. But other than that, I didn't know what to do. You know what I'm going to say? I can't unsay it. And the woman at CNN said, well, let's just wait and see because we really we like having you on. We need to have somebody on. We don't want to actually fire you. And we, she said, well, you know, we may have to part company, but we'll see. And they made me wait about three weeks. They paid me for three weeks. And what they were saying was, hopefully they'll stop. The pressure from the outside groups will stop, she said. And if it stops, we'll have you back on. And that's what, if you think about Santorum, Santorum gave a speech a month ago and he said something, I don't know, about uh, Native American civilization. And he later clarified the statement or whatever. And But he was getting, the pressure was coming from the outside. And that's what they do. And here's the thing about the so-called cancel culture. The other side has professional people, agitators, who keep up the pressure. People that are stay there the whole time, that are putting the pressure on entities to say, don't give in, don't let that person stay on. They have people that don't stop. If you're conservative and you complain about somebody saying something horrendous about someone else, um, you know, then people go on with their lives. The left has professional people that stay in that business and stay pressuring to get what they want. And they, by the way, they don't take you out if you're not competent. In fact, I used to joke Santorum got left there for a long time because I didn't think he was very effective. He wasn't a very good Trump defender. He was kind of just there. But he's a different style. He's a kind of he's a former senator. He's a little he's a little more. um, He's a little more laid back or sort of uh, more, I don't know, not cerebral is the wrong word, but more kind of doesn't like to take the fight to him, which is, you know, I think kind of got to do in that setting. But anyway, uh, that's a little reflection on that, on that political article. All right. We got to run, everybody. Thank you, as always, to our great technical director, Noah, Joanna, for booking our guests and you for listening. We will be back tomorrow. Please visit ProAmericaReport.com. Until then, Ed Martin here on the ProAmerica Report. Talk to you tomorrow. This is the Pro-America Report on The Answer San Diego.